Extras for Podcast is brought to you by the fine folks at Cage Club. So for all of your comics, movies, music, games, and more, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Everybody's still gay. The X-Men are still gay. It's still X-Factor and everything's still gay. I guess that makes this, this is X. I'm Nico. I'm Kyle. I'm Maddie. And where's Jonah? I hope he survived the experience. I didn't survive the experience, apparently. (laughs) And I'm Jonah, and we hope you survived the experience. You remember when gay people used to be gay? And now the X-Men are super gay. Now the X-Men are super gay. And speaking of super gay, we have with us still, from our last amazing episode, the one, the only, Nathan. Hey. I realize that it's not like the magnificent Nate, and I'm just kind of like the one, the, oh. <laughs> kind of a big buildup to kind of just I know, right? leave you like, hanging with your name there. <laughs> so last episode, we talked a lot about a lot of books, including New Mutants, Wolverine, and Empire. That didn't leave as much time for the incredible debut of X-Factor as we'd initially been hoping. So we're here to talk a little bit more about the characters of X-Factor today. Here, everyone is gay, and everybody is okay with their mental illness because they're going to get help, and my beautiful David is there, and Dokken is there, and now they can do hot stuff together, and I can't believe it, but I found myself completely able to put up with Northstar for a whole issue for the first time in a decade. And he made it difficult. He really challenged the very elastic limits of my patience. Yeah, like like I was telling Nico after I first read this, this is the first time that anybody has ever been able to make me like Northstar and Dokken. So I need more of this. Just want to shout out, I I was so thrilled to see Teeny Howard succeed so mightily on Excalibur, in my opinion, and to see Leah Williams come in and knock it right out of the park on a number one, you know, they, we, we cannot say enough about how important it is to see women succeed in the industry. And from the cover, you know that this is going to be a very different kind of book. And that's what I've loved about the new non-male identifying staff of the X-Books and what they're bringing. Whether it's Leah on X-Factor, Teeny on Excalibur, or Vita, who, while it does appear that Children of the Atom is currently nowhere on the schedule, and when it does appear will be a miniseries, they've been making appearances on other titles coming up, and I'm very excited to see that sort of community and interaction. Seeing that trio of friends celebrate this book's debut on Twitter warmed the very deepest cockles of my gay little ex-heart. And I I could go on and on about Leah Williams giving me one of the most startling interpretations of psychology in a comic book in years. But if I did that without jumping up and down and kicking things over how good David Baldion's art was, I would be missing 50% of what made this magic. There is this weird way that guys like La Fuente and Marquez and Baldion are able to capture cartoonish magic, kind of supplant it with anime extravagance and wrap it in something that feels familiar like a CW soap opera. I don't know how to explain what it is, but it has a very honest feel that I feel like standing outside 
gives me. Like, a David Baldion book feels like standing in the world. I don't know how else to say it. I I loved every aspect of David Baldion's art, from North Star's power signature to Prodigy and uh, Rachel's power signatures, his, his cyber scanning and her chrono skimming. But I don't think there's enough to be said about the specific streetwear yes. that everybody is so parodying. good. Yes. Oh my god! I need I need Polaris to dress like this forever. Yes, <laughs> Polaris is going through her goth phase. Let her live. Well, I mean, she looks a little bit like Polaris from The Gifted, yep. which yep. Yep. is of yes, note. Yes, I was just thinking that who was like the best character on Bunheads. So double of note, but I. Love every character on this cover, Dokken, North Star, Lorna, Rachel, David, and of course my precious, my precious eye guy. He's so cute. Yep. Right? But no, specifically, <laughs> I I need to give it up and we all need to give it up. If everybody can just take ten seconds and we can just pour one out for amazing baby being amazing. <gasps> so amazing. Amazing baby. Amazing baby. He he was daydreaming about kicking oh, amazing baby too hard. No. No. Yeah, Poor little psychopath. psychopath you're raising a psychopath. Oh, amazing baby. And you know what? What a what a great thing to to take away from a rockier moment in Excalibur. The the Colin Bloodstone arc. Yes. At least we have Amazing Ugh, Baby now. I have to imagine that was the two of them being like you know, maybe Leah Le- Le- was like, Ugh, I just need a warwolf baby. <laughs> what I wouldn't give for a warwolf baby. And Teeny was like, you know, <laughs> funny story, but I'm like drowning in warwolves over here. Do you want one? And Leah was like, are you just like giving out warwolves? And I have to imagine Vita came running in and was like, warwolves! And like everybody just had a big warwolf party. I love how Rachel's the one who ended up with it because she's obviously had the most history with warwolves going back to, I think, Excalibur 1 probably was when they first appeared. Yeah, absolutely. Yep, yep. And I think that's important. Like, the idea that Rachel is forgiving and understanding and herself was a hound and was used to murder and knows that a warwolf is used for murder and is willing to suspend and sacrifice her own fear and mortality based on past experiences to give someone else the same kind of freedom of forgiveness that she's been able to experience. The entire idea of Rachel's new personality being this grumpy, magnanimous person is truly a testament to how she is both of her parents and yet her own person completely. You know what else she is? Greedy. Because she took the entire basement for herself. So That's true. true. <laughs> oh, my God. I can't say enough yes. about the Boneyard. Oh, yeah. I, uh, I a little bit. Now, I, I will I will say, and I think the design is beautiful, and I think that we are getting more out of this book than we ever could have expected. But having said that, watching Polaris summon Bismuth from the ground and create a little cradle for herself, I was a little bit hoping to get a giant gay Bismuth <laughs> tower. Like, give me yes. my giant rainbow tower. It's all I want. <laughs> oh. But the Boneyard, okay. I, I feel like if it looks a little bit more metallic, it's a little bit easier to justify within the realm of Polaris's power set. Okay. Hey, I can accept that. My favorite part of this issue was the consistency in learning that in the many years between his first appearances and now, North Star is still a ginormous, <laughs> pompous dick. And I love that. I love that North Star is a great at representation to show that gay people can be assholes too. I love that the Boneyard looks kind of like a helix. Ooh, yes. 
It does, yes. It actually represents the X Factor. Yes. Oh. I love that great callback to Giant Size 1 in that one panel where they have her. Like, almost looks exactly like when she was raising Krakoa back up in the atmosphere when she was raising the Boneyard. That was when she was still announcing her identity as the late uh, <laughs> Mistress of Magnetism. <laughs> That's called growth. What else is growth is, oh my, the scene between Polaris and Magneto made me cry in which she said, if you had to describe my personality, what would you say? And to which she says, as you see, I wouldn't know what to say either, which I think is a jab at her previous writing because I feel so bad for Polaris. She really wasn't given a personality for so many years. She's been around since the be- almost the beginning and she really did not have a personality. And to see her want to develop that and a relationship with her father, I think was beautiful. I want to touch on something because I've made a lot of comments about it over the years and I do want to firmly state on the show instead of just posting about it online for a change i like plenty of things about the chuck austin run of uncanny x-men there are cool character inclusions sammy the fish boy's existence in its entirety is in the chuck austin run of uncanny x-men and i'm an enormous sammy fan but the treatment of polaris and annie in that run is humongously problematic that was the apexing of lorna's insanity and i use the word insanity with a pejorative intent to the writing. It's one thing to have a woman be excited for her wedding. That's a really natural part of storytelling. But to have a woman who has been responsible for saving the world, who has had to fight her way back from insanity, who has been responsible for government protective services, who has watched family and friends die and knows what it takes to overcome these things, for her to be so blind to Havoc's pain and to let him struggle and go through all of this so that at her wedding, when she finds out that he's leaving her, she constructs a magneto helmet of silverware. So you're saying to me that in the moment that this woman has her heart broken because she was so obsessed with her wedding that she no longer had any care for the man she was marrying she manifests the imagery of a recently dead terrorist to come after the members of her friends and family using iconography from her wedding that is so misogynistic it's incredibly difficult to even put into words that hits so many anti-woman tropes and that is just the tip of the Lorna mistreatment iceberg so you know what Yeah, I hope that's a dig at her previous writers, because Lorna is so frequently batted around like a sexual object, whether it was, is she, you know, the dick spawn of Magneto, or is she going to be Iceman or Havoc's girlfriend, like she's an accessory piece or something. She is not the sort of space to be willed away to someone else because it's convenient. So the idea that Leah Williams was like, no, we're going to burn this shit down. Good. Don't forget possessed. She's always possessed too. Oh my God. Possessions and body swaps. And then she had those negative energy powers where she could grow for a while. Mm Mm-hmm. In a book like X Factor, it would be easy enough to fall into the trap of the X investigation title. Now, a lot of people might not realize this, but the X-Men have a long history of investigative titles. It wasn't just that 
the Madrox investigation era of X-Factor led to detective interest in the X-Books. As a matter of fact, the original X-Factor's pitch was a group of mutant hunters searching out young mutants. Ultimately, it turned out that they were the original five X-Men who were helping those mutants after quote-unquote abducting them by keeping them safe from the people who would do them harm. But that did start an investigation kind of vibe at the X-Men. Whether it's the pages of District X, where Bishop was one of the best cops you've ever seen, or it's Sage doing her incredible thinky work. The X-Men love a good detective story, a good mystery, and a good investigation. This run of X-Factor is seeking to give us those pieces, and the bite-sized methodology of of providing us these first issues that give a complete story, like X-Force did, like X-Men number one did, like Marauders number one did. It's really making it easy to step into these characters. I know I have a wealth of information and experience with all of them, but the whole point of This Is X is fans with 30 years of experience and 30 days of experience coming together to share ideas and talk about character perspective. I have a ton with all of them, but I'd love to know about your guys' experience with the roster of X-Factor prior to Leah Williams and David Baldione's monster first issue. Mmm... I mean, I've had a good amount of experience with both uh, Prestige and Polaris, but everybody else was fairly new for me. I, they've appeared in some of the stuff that I've read, but it's it's vastly uh, limited compared to the other two. Now, Jonah, I have a feeling that you're a bit more in the Kyle boat with the exception of like the 1980s and 70s work. That is correct. I know a little bit here and there about North Star, a little bit here and there about Polaris. I just got introduced to Rachel in her first appearance in the 80s. I have never heard of iGuy until this. I know about Dawkins and his problematic tendencies. And oh boy, Dawkins just does things to me. <laughs> oh, Dawkins. He's not supposed to. <laughs> and I wouldn't let him. But oh my god, what a gorgeous man. I, I know I say it way too often, but like, wouldn't he just be the best pain slave? <laughs> oh, implying that he isn't already. Oh, I know. <laughs> Now, Maddie, I know you have a deep affinity for one of these characters from the same run I do. Yeah, Prodigy, for sure. Prodigy, my, my first introduction to Prodigy coming out of Young Avengers Volume 3 by Kieran Gillen. Um, definitely my, my favorite distinguished by, as Dokken would put it. You actually know Prodigy from way before that. That's the same Prodigy from New X. From from New X Men, of course. Oh my God! Haha. <laughs> yeah, right. That's. I knew. I knew. What I... an amazing character growth. That's the young man who was a member of Danny Moonstar's New Mutant Squadron. His powers allowed him to adopt other people's knowledge and sort of assimilate it the way Cipher would a language. Ultimately, he was depowered and wound up in the pages of Young Avengers by Kieran Gillen, who. When Kieran Gillen began writing Young Avengers, he was not yet out as bisexual. He has, in the time since, come out as bisexual and has talked extensively about how David really helped him with that. And I could like, sit on the floor and cry over that. You know, and I, I wanted to bring up, and I'm glad we got there organically, Young Avengers Volume 3 is the last time I saw a book come right out of the gate this gay. 
so you know, gay in, in, in such a beautiful way but so gay oh my god Dawkins just wants dick and wants to give dick just everywhere this book came with a coupon for um, a bathhouse <laughs> I would absolutely go to the mutant Krakoa bathhouse can can I just say that we really shouldn't erase his bisexuality because he was also feeling the same way yeah. regarding Aurora. Oh, absolutely. As a pansexual man Of course, who, of course. Yeah, as a pansexual man who leans gay, I do tend to lean gay, you know? But <laughs> if you put Joanna Cargill in the book, I would be very straight very quickly. <laughs> To kick it back over to something Nico discussed, wanted to talk about, of course, the characters of X-Factor here, but there is no character in X-Factor more important than the book and the art itself. Definitely want to, again, give all the love and respect to David Baldeon for such a such a beautiful and deft job on the lines. But of course, Israel Silva coming in with the beautiful cell shading and stippling in the presence of light. Honestly, the book is gorgeous front to back, but if we were going to dive into any one character themselves, Nathan, who stood out for you from our debut on X Factor? It'd be a tie between Lorna and Rachel, because I just really like the deep dive into Lorna and, and when, we, when she talked about really not knowing what her personality is. In Rachel, we just got to see a lot of what she's always been, but also we got to see the softer side with uh, Amazing Baby, her also exploring her chrono skimming skills too. Also, I want to say too, iBoy, I've loved him ever since uh, Christina Strain's Generation X. If you guys haven't read it, it's amazing. It's almost as gay as uh, Young Avengers. So it's a fantastic book. The thing that makes me the most excited about this book is the way that it not just brought these characters back, but I felt like each one of them got a note that redefined them or moved them forward in an interesting way. I've been a fan of Dokken since his initial introduction. Now, there's times where, you know, he poisons a specific bottle of wine, knowing that the person will reach for that bottle of wine. And yeah, okay, there's things that are hammy, but that's hammy writing. And yes, if that's the character over and over again, the character is hammy. But the thing I saw from Dokken here that I feel like I'd never seen before was a softness to do better. And I want to say I feel like that comes from his sister. I very much feel that Laura has softened him. And maybe I'm just projecting it based on the fact that we've seen them near each other once or twice. But I believe if anybody is able to break through to Dokken, it's Laura. Laura shouldn't exist. She's a genetic experimentation. Dokken exists by virtue of natural birth, but one of them is far more natural than the other. Laura is a complete person. And I see such reflections of her in Dokken in the ways she's reserved, that he's kind of a monster. In the ways that she's calculating and quiet, where he is sexual and brash. I just can't. I loved this fresh approach to Dokken. Did anybody think they saw anything there that they'd never seen before? Definitely. It was it was definitely that desire to be seen as not that person that he was all along. He wants to be that better person. And that made me happy. 
You know, I, I think it was summed up in his exchange with Northstar. You know, not everybody's your fucking enemy, Bobier. I think that that is something that I could very easily have seen somebody saying to Dokken five years ago. You know, and and so if if at all he appeared anywhere, you know, so <laughs> I, uh, I I definitely think this this showcases Nico as everybody's pointed out uh, a, a growth and a softness. Uh, yeah, the scene where Dokken holds uh, Northstar back when he's going to go search the car, and he just holds her back and says, "No, you can't be the one to find your sister like that." That really. Jonah, was this your second experience with Dokken after watching him and Logan play Russian roulette with their claws? Yeah, <laughs> I forgot about that. <laughs> Father-son bonding, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's it's either play Papa Claw or I guess I think we've made a number of well, docking Dokken jokes. You say you say Papa Claw. Where's the claw going? Oh, Hope was in this issue. Was, no offense, she seemed a little whiny. She was kind of like, oh, oh yeah, but like, uh, there's a cue and like, uh, like, why was she stuttering and not sure of herself? She's one of the most powerful mutants. She's honestly the key to the five. Without her, there wouldn't be a resurrection process. You could say that about any of them. I'm just saying because if they didn't, her power, the powers weren't amplified. It'd take a much, much, much longer time. So like, why is she so timid? Well, I mean, she's still 16 and she's traveled through time in a war-torn future where she was on the run with no food or water for like months at a clip. She watched her dad die and she's had a kind of tough time. And when she's not being killed or fridged, she's being utilized as a plot device. And, you know, for so many years before Hope, Rachel bore that burden. Rachel was the whiny one. Rachel was the kind of Summer's child. And I think the thing that kind of pushed her differently here was having hope to compare to. But also, if I can, Rachel, chrono skimming, bring it up all the time. (laughs) It is my favorite. I bring it up constantly. I've named episodes chrono skimming the X-Men. I have brought up chrono skimming so many times on this show that people have said, do you know anything else about Rachel? And I'm like, yes, she had an orb of her mother and put her own essence in it because she's pushing. (laughs) So I just... No. Yes. I need everyone to know chrono skimming is the coolest power ever. I love the little exchange between Rachel and Hope, like the fist bump, you know, like I'm glad to see such a sisterly bond sort of growing between the two of them, even though I guess they're technically like, what would they be? Step? I don't know. Confusing. (laughs) Sister, sister. (laughs) They're step spirits or something. something. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was that was a nice little uh, connection. I mean, I I believe that Hope is staying in the uh, the Summers compound, I, I believe. But yeah, having having that connection between the two of them was was pretty nice. I find it specifically hard to believe that Hope would live in the Summers habitat when she wouldn't just explicitly live with the Five. I feel like if the new mutants are getting down all the time, the Five must be inextricably closer. Oh no! Here's the thing, though. I don't. I I I can't sexualize anybody in the Five. <laughs> I think of Proteus Not as even like Egg. No, well, Egg is hot, but like I can't. Yeah. Yeah, Egg is hot as egg shit. Egg is hot totally. as shit, but like. His mentality, like he seems real precious. You know what I mean? Like, like he wants to just play brony time, not play sexy time. Not even elixir. That's fair. No, I can't with elixir. <laughs> I I can't with elixir. The way that I super <laughs> hardcore love David, I the opposite elixir. 
I found I don't like the pretty blonde boy as a rule. That's not my character type. And Elixir is just a little too Ricky Schroeder on silver spoons. He's the beautiful golden boy with the beautiful golden powers and he can heal and he can make everybody feel better and make everybody happy. And when he was 16, his teacher thought he was so hot that his teacher fucked him. And like, I just kind of find Elixir. That's not me being silly. That's canon. That's one of those things where, for me, Elixir so represents the golden boy that I don't super duper care. No, that's fine. I was I just get curious. That. Oh, and the teacher that fucked him was Wolfsbane. Ooh, yeah. Gah. Yeah. <laughs> Did anybody notice when Rachel was chromoscanning Aurora's memories that she looked a little thirsty for Aurora? Well, we talk about it a lot that... In his original plans for the character, um, Rachel was supposed to end up with Kitty Pride, so it's Rachel's often coded bare minimum bisexual. So, like, I support this. Rachel, Rachel, <laughs> Rachel, Rachel. There are well, there are at least two out and proud bi characters on the X Factor team right now. So I would really support a storyline of Rachel coming into her, her own bisexuality or her own queerness and, you know, living her best Rachel life. And, like, as much as I'd love to be like, oh, with Polaris, they get gay together. I kind of, and this is, maybe I'm projecting weird stuff, but with everything that Lorna has been through where she's never found true happiness, I wouldn't hate it if Lorna went on a journey where she discovered that right now, for her, what she needs to be is ace. Right now, she doesn't experience those kinds of attractions. The more important thing is looking inward and repairing, and where she is in her life, attraction isn't occurring to her. It's not something she's feeling. She has growing to do beyond other people. We talked earlier in in the previous episode about North Star and how this was a somewhat palatable North Star experience. He certainly was hot-headed and his temper was very present. But if there's one thing that stood out to me as an odd moment, it was when he returns to Arbor Magna with Aurora's body and just drops her from 10 feet in the air. I feel like the pettiness in that supersedes what should be his love and care for his sister. Like, that struck me as a little odd. It was a fantastic moment. I gasped. But I had a read on it, and it has to do with reinforcing the impermanence of bodies in a permanent soul. So that's no longer her body. She can come back from the dead. That's not his sister anymore. That's now the proof his sister needs to be brought back, but that is no longer her body to him. She's going to come back. That's trash. He refers to her as proof. So it, it, it is the fact that she was the crux of his of his journey in this issue. And then to watch her be discarded as disposable. It did, I suppose, reinforce the idea. I had to take a step back and say, oh, no, no, no. This is this is all temporary. Yeah. Bodies are just something that Krakoa is using to facilitate the mutant agenda right now. Bodies are secondary to the idea of mutant eternity. I'm curious to see what Aurora's involvement will be when she's resurrected. She is going to be a regular character appearing in the title. So I, I too, I too (laughs) wish to know. Here, here. <laughs> so frequently, Lorna and Aurora play the crazy one. Yes. They play the damaged one. So it's going to be interesting to see them in a book where the damage isn't the story, the repairing is. Not to mention, I feel like it's been a really long time since Northstar and Aurora shared a book together. 
Right, because he, he pretty much moved to the X titles while she didn't really yeah, get yeah. anything, right? Yeah. So I do find myself curious how this is all going to shake out. Leah Williams is doing some really brave things, and I guess the bravest of them that I haven't quite known how to address yet is um, North Star shouldn't lead a team yes. that Rachel and Lorna are both on. I think... That while we have made some comments to the stability of their mental condition being maybe a little bit less than stellar, they have significantly more leadership experience and qualifications among the X-Men than perhaps a guy who quits the team every time he has a bad day or wants to be a championship skier. <laughs> Listen, Lorna's going through her art school phase because you can't tell me that's not every girl who's ever gone to art school, at least first year. Maybe second. It's also Emily Thorne's disguise when she's getting close to Daniel. When I was a a little girl. (laughs) That's a deep cut for people. (laughs) So my feeling about this is that this book seems to be a opportunity for everybody to grow. And giving Northstar the opportunity to lead when there are people who have had more experience is actually a good opportunity for him because while he'll be leading, he'll have the ability to lean on them for their experience. You know, and I also feel like a leadership position in X Factor right now kind of is more of a paper pusher than it is a field leader. I feel like it leaves Lorna and Rachel in a good position to be field leaders on, I mean, we saw how many fleet seeds came in at the end of the first issue. There's no way that the entire unit of X Factor is going to be able to tackle each individual call for help. So I think to put Northstar in a position to delegate the stronger players is, you know, it's something of a strategy. Okay, okay, okay. That that kind of won me back over. I can see with him looking to the others for experience, guidance, and expertise, then perhaps, yeah, okay. Him in a leadership position makes sense there. It's kind of like, and I don't mean to jump back to another book, but when I saw Wolverine and the Marauders, I was like, yeah, if Kate's going to be dead, I kind of maybe need Logan to lead the Marauders. I don't need him in X-Force the way I need him leading the Marauders. And then I'm like, I need Quentin in the Marauders. And then I'm like, I guess I just want it to be an, I guess I just want X-Force to be a Domino book. (laughs) Just like Domino and Sage running around being awesome. Speaking of Sage being awesome, Sage needs to be a regular character in this because Leah Williams nails her voice. Holy. Oh my god, my precious Tessa. No one ever leaves her alone. (laughs) Everybody comes crying to her. And she, I think she secretly eats it up. She complains that everyone wants to use her and blah, blah, blah. No, you love it. You love the attention. You love to be part of everything. You like having friends. Don't deny it. I see you. And we're going to become friends. It's hard for her because, you know, like most women who spent time with Sebastian Shaw, she's irrevocably damaged by life. Mm-hmm. But have you seen his body? <laughs> Something that I find interesting is the whole part. The whole point of at least this issue was the proof that uh, Jean Marie Aurora has actually died, so she can be part of the resurrection process because they don't want clones and duplicates running around. I actually found the idea of what this X Factor team is going to be way more interesting than what X Force is. I kind of thought that this is what X-Force was going to be, which is missions, instead of whatever the hell we got. 
this I really had no expectations for a team that's going to, you know, prove that either people are dead or just incognito or whatever. But this, the idea of that's what the team is going to be and those are what the missions are going to be, I kind of hope it's just like that, that it's just missions. And I would love it to be one and dones with longer stories in the background. But if anything, I took from the first issue of Hellions and the first issue of X Factor, get me in and get me out with questions still on my mind. I agree. The mission here really made a difference. Nathan, did you feel like this fit some of the earlier X-Factor titles? I did like the investigation factor because it really did fit in with that Madrox era and kind of continue it further. Definitely when I was reading it, I kind of felt like we were like reading CSI Krakoa a little bit. And it, it was refreshing and it was nice to see that. So It's definitely an interesting way of moving forward with this team. And I'm looking forward to more of this. I kind of wish that we had gotten more background on what happened instead of the team just narrating to the Quiet Council. I did feel like the CSI wrap-up was a little bit contrived, in my opinion, but I feel like we were blessed with so much the five and so much interaction between the five and X Factor and the Quiet Council and, and so many great highlights and showcasing of abilities and personality from this cast that we clearly all have grown to love so immediately that I'm curious to see how they'll handle the execution of not only the rest of this mystery, but mysteries going forward. You know, and I, I say mysteries because I'm a little bit hopeful that there is something of a mystery element. Like, I, I like the, the bang amount one and dones, but if there is an overarching mystery and it does happen to be Aurora's death, then I hope that aspect picks up a little bit. But otherwise, I'm on board for everything. And there's something kind of fascinating that happened in Cable number two. I don't know how many people here are familiar with the Eve of Destruction, oh, yes. the Scott Lobdell run that helped kick off the era of New X-Men by giving a little bit of a crowbar separation between the end of the revolution and the beginning of New X-Men. In it, there is a rather uh, despisable Ooh. character named Polly, and Polly served on the interim X-Men alongside Northstar. Polly turned up in the pages of Cable Number 2, kind of living a quiet little life, and I would have assumed that would have been something Northstar would have been connected to, considering the era, but... I don't know. It just, as much as we've talked about how I love Vita and Leah and Teenie's friendship, I kind of feel like Jerry is hanging out on the side like, hey guys! And they're kind of <laughs> waving back and they're just sort of like, okay, sure, let's share characters for a sec. You can't have Amazing Baby. <laughs> <laughs> no one can have Amazing Baby. Oh. And that's... Ever. That's the thing that's really started to take forethought in my mind. I don't think I'm nervous about Ten of Swords, and this is the first X-Men crossover I haven't been nervous about because I feel for the first time in a very long time, like the X-Men operates as one narrative. I'm getting very different perspectives on that one narrative over and over again, but it's one narrative. Hickman, and I not to play favorites, but it does seem like Hickman, Jerry Dugan, and Teeny Howard seem to be juggling the most balls that actively control the game and i feel as though if a teeny or jay hicks or dugan book come out that week the narrative is moving forward 
And Wells's Hellions number one has been an exciting, and Hellions number two was exciting, and I'm clearly in love with X Factor. I am excited for Children of the Atom. And the other titles running along, whether it, you know, the now long gone Fallen Angels, which is completely forgotten, or it's the incredible journey Marauders is taking us on, there's something to be said for the titles that don't necessarily take place on Krakoa and the way they're painting into this bigger portrait. I've never been a bigger X fan in my life. I've never been more excited. And I feel like X Factor gave me that last piece I needed. X Factor said it's okay to believe, kind of. I I don't know how else to say it. There's a magic to X Factor. And I think it really completes a puzzle. What do you guys think about this idea of a consistent progressive narrative that the X-Men has formed for the first time since the dawn of the Age of Trades? I think you hit the nail on the head when it comes to the trio of Hickman, Howard, and Dugan. And it only serves to highlight the deficit that are the Benjamin Percy books. Now, don't get me wrong. I love X-Force and I love Wolverine. And side note, Benjamin Percy looks like Wolverine. Oh my god, he does. He is a jacked, furry (laughs) motherfucker. Oh my god, please give him a photo cover. (laughs) Yes, please. (laughs) It's still a very good book. It's still a very strong narrative, but it doesn't exactly tie into the rest of the X proper titles that I I really would hope to see. So that's why I think there was so much magic and X X factor for me. I definitely agree with you. It was a it was a last piece of a puzzle, or at the very least, the final of four corners. Nathan, you had actually said something about you felt very much like Benjamin Percy's Wolverine has echoes of classic westerns online yes i did yeah no and and it's kind of something i've noticed with a lot of the dawn of x titles that are going on right now yeah wolverine really seems like a a classic western like if you look at some of the settings they're in even though the roles are reversed like the the strong romance narratives the the redemption arc it all it all seems like a, a big western when you've got excalibur seems like a huge fantastic fantasy story and then you've got Marauders, which to me almost feels like a pirate movie, of course. But then you've got the more traditional superhero X-Men elements to that. So it's just, I kind of, they all kind of come together. But I see each one has its own like little like movie genre that it's living in as well. I wonder if we're talking about genres then. I wonder if the reason that X-Factor feels so organic and such a such a natural evolution of the narrative or, or in completing the narrative, if that's because there is the mystery and investigation element which i don't think i've parted with since house and powers the wondering of what comes next you know this itch wasn't specifically scratched for me in x-force and i feel like to nico's credit to echo something that nico has been saying it's all about perspective x-force doesn't give me a perspective that puts me in the present and puts me on krakoa as often as i as i would like to be so I wonder if this feels like the next big movement for Dawn of X because it shares that same mystery element. Yes. Kyle, when I lured you into this whole shebang, it was the last restart with Uncanny by Rosenberg, which up and down, high points and low points. But at that point, it still felt very much like separate X books taking place at the same publisher. I feel for the first time since you and I have been reading together, it feels like different x-books coming from the same x line it definitely does and it's it's nice that all of these stories are interwoven for the most part and seeing 
references to uh events that happen in one book being brought up in another book that that kind of makes me happy i can understand that people who don't read all of the books may not catch these references may find it confusing uh but i don't feel like this entire line is something that needs to be uh missed i mean we all of the books at this point they do bring something to the table yeah, I don't feel like anything's particularly wasting my money. Honestly, the less said about X-Men Fantastic Four, the better, but yeah. I don't yeah. feel like I wasted my money. I was thoroughly surprised, impressed, and enjoyed X-Factor a lot more than what I thought it would be. I never, I haven't read the original run yet, and I haven't read subsequent titles from the Yandere years, but so I had no expectations of what would I was going getting into when I saw this. I saw the cast and was like, I literally don't know anybody on here, except that they're super gay. I was like, oh, this is pretty cool. This is like super enjoyable. So I'm really excited to see where things are going to go. And they have me on the hook. And I am really hoping that they continue to have me on the hook and continue to meet the levels of expectations that I think everybody here has set for them unlike Fallen Angels, which everybody was super impressed with that first episode, and then, oh, that that went downhill real fast. Bye-bye, Fallen Angels. Guys, don't forget to check out our Twitter over at X's for Podcast on Twitter, or check any of the hosts' pages, because we are giving away that Dazzler action figure. All you have to do to enter is follow along on Twitter, and comment on who you think might be a great substitute for a member of the five. We're going to pick one of those answers at random and share a few on the show, but only one is going to win the brand new Dazzler Outback Marvel Legends action figure. I want to thank you so much for coming out, Nathan. It was so great having you on these last two episodes, and I can't wait to have you back. Thank you. It's been fantastic, guys. Appreciate it. So thanks. thanks for joining us. Where can where can everybody find you? That's a really great way to pronounce that. <laughs> but Nathan, until you're back on our show, where can everybody find uh, you? You can online? find me on Twitter at Dazzler AOA. Oh, terrific. And you can find he and I talking pretty much all day on Twitter, usually commenting on each other's stuff. So you don't want to miss that. Definitely look him up. But as for the rest of these handsome gentlemen, Kyle, until we come back next time to return to the great quiet council of Krakoa, where can everybody find you online? You can find me on both Twitter and Instagram at Drantis82. Maddie, where can everybody find you? Well, you can find me hanging with the five, basking in the adoration of my supplicants over on Instagram at, at the basely covetous man. Hey, Jonah, where can everybody find you? Can you can find me trying to figure out how, how to have that many abs in real life on Twitter and Instagram at peak Jonah. Nico, where can everybody find you? As always, you guys can find me all over this amazing network on shows like HTML, which I do with my husband, Kevo, Jonah's amazing boyfriend, where currently we are knee-deep in the Fantastic Four, along with a bunch of these guys. Don't forget to check out the other feeds of this show, X is for Podcast, where we cover all different aspects of the X-Men universe, whether it's the 1980s or now. You guys can always find me over on Instagram and Twitter at NicoAction, that's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And guys, don't forget, the world is a constantly changing and evolving place. This is a big year, and with so much going on in the world right now, you need to keep yourself armed with this as much information as possible read like you have to know it's in that information vote like your weakest friends lives depend on it and make sure that you are doing everything you can to be part of the solution not the problem and guys until we return to take a look at a few more funny pages keep those krakoan lights lit see ya bye, bye. bye.